Welcome to Live Arts Market Pulse on the Artelligence Podcast. Each week, Live Arts sales team discusses the most important subjects in the ever-changing art marketplace. I'm your host, Marion Maneker. Welcome to another Live Art Market Pulse uh, podcast. I've got uh, George O'Dell just back from Paris and Sophie Coco here with me to discuss where we are in the art market. Let's start with George. You've been to the new art fair in Paris, Paris Plus. Would you give us a little sense of what you saw? Of course. And Paris in October is always one of my favorite art world destinations. Um, sadly, not in the Grand Poly still as it's under construction. I found the fair, the buzz, good. Lots of people on the, lots of people in town. Um, I think both to enjoy what was happening at the fair and some of the other shows around town. The fair itself, very busy, very well attended. The layout which felt almost exactly to what it felt like at FIAC. Um, you know, I don't think I don't think it moved the dial on what FIAC offered by any stretch of the imagination. Um, the, the space that the temporary space that it's in, um, a little tight and congested. Um, I don't think it dampened sales at all. And finally, like freeze, the, the younger sections were actually in the tent out the back. So they can no longer talk talk trash about freeze in the tent. Um, because Basel now has a tent in Paris, at least until they get back into their other space. I was going to say, to be fair, this is a kind of a soft opening for them. They grabbed the date, they muscled mm -hmm. Fiac out of the way, and then they scrambled to put on a fair in a temporary space. So, totally. Uh, anything I, short of a disaster is a success. Yeah, but it, funnily, the layout was very similar to what Fiac's layout was in, in terms of the rows and the columns of galleries and even whose galleries booth was next to whose. It was, it was almost identical to FIAC. So, you know, I think there was a lot of anticipation as to how good the fair would be. I'd say the quality of material in the fair was very good, very strong. I think the quality of attendees, if we can put quantify that, was very good. The galleries that I spoke to all seemed to be making, you know, steady clip of sales. Mood was upbeat. The wasn't a lot of food available. At one point, I believe there's only one sandwich left at the snack bar <laughs> to the highest bidder. At, at least it was something other than a sausage, right? Right. I, well, a friend of mine um, at Gagosian was like, we should have just brought a sausage stand to really like, make our mark here. <laughs> <laughs> a sausage stand at Perry Plus would have been a big hit. Just would have been awesome. Even if it's like shoved in a baguette, it would have been great. So do you think that the setup was just because they were working off of some sort of template or it just a coincidence that it all fell in, you know, or maybe that the, the, the galleries that showed up said, Hey, this is where I want to be. And so they sort of fell into the same. The answer is probably somewhere in the middle. Like we got to put this thing together. This is the shape of the building. It kind of looks like the grand poly, except it doesn't have a up, upper deck. And, you know, so here's, here's the layout of the running order of spaces. But I, I, I don't know, maybe it'll be interesting to see when they're back in the, the normal space, the traditional space, because what was always great about FIAC as opposed to Freeze or Freeze Masters is this cross pollination of secondary and primary and young things next to older secondary market material and kind of bouncing back and forth between those things, I think, refreshed the eyes in a way that you have and freeze and freeze masters you basically have two fairs running at very different speeds you've kind of got freeze which like things make noise and blink and it's loud 
and then you go to Freeze Masters and it's subdued and it's carpeted and there's a lower lighting and you know there's lots of interesting objects next to art but it, i always liked at fiat that there was a multi-generational offering of art all on one level sure the super young stuff was high up but for the most part, all on the main floor. So the conventional wisdom is that this is an either-or situation, that over time, Paris or London have to win out, but we can't have both. But we've had both. I mean, FIAC has had its ups and downs. We've had both for a number of years. Uh, do you see it, you know, both persisting, maybe with different constituencies? I think so. I always thought that, you know, the galleries that did both always brought different material that suited the audience. You know, think about the Belgian or French gallery kind of brought better, I always thought brought better material to Fiat than they did to Freeze. I always liked how, you know, Gisela Capitan did Freeze, but then Capitan Petzl did Fiat. And now they're doing, they're doing the same with uh, Basel Paris. Um, what I actually thought was even more interesting is that some, you know, traditional secondary market dealers and galleries who you see in Basel and in Basel, Miami, in TAFAF and other places weren't at this fair. I'm thinking like the Tony Myers of the world and some of those galleries. They just they even though the Basel brands on it, they weren't there. So and that's what made me feel like it was just sort of Fiat with a new name. And I was actually at a dinner on the Wednesday night with a French collecting couple. And they they just kept calling it Fiat because for all intents and purposes, it is Fiat for them. But well, again, to be fair, if they're going to turn this into not just a big art fair, but a big art fair connected to Paris, meaning the, uh, the luxury goods, but especially the fashion industry, that's going to take time. You know, they had uh, eight or ten satellite fairs around this, but that's basically Fiat with its uh, satellites. But they want not just satellite art fairs, they want all sorts of other, or I, I think the world wants all sorts of other events connected to the cross-pollination between, you know, art and music, art and fashion, art and luxury go goods. And that, that you, you, one, you can't really plan it. It kind of gels and there's lots of, in, because there's so many in, uh, individual decisions being made by various companies and some, at some point, it, everyone will sort of congregate around things. So it, it's going to take them some time to get that going. I mean, also maybe the counter argument is freeze came together very quickly i mean it sort of started in the 2000s and blew up uh, almost immediately because there was such a demand for uh, contemporary art and really no venue for it in london yeah i you know i think part of the the allure too is that october is a lovely time to be in the city of paris i think for a lot of people coming from abroad it offered, offers an opportunity to stop into town you know eat well shop do all those kind of other culture things as you mentioned but then also go other places too right like go to venice or go you know the real question is if and i don't think it's true yet if basel paris is strong enough that nobody has to go to basel in the middle of the summer right and I don't think we're there yet. I think that the the main, the original fair still holds the most weight. No, and that, I think that is the big open question for the industry. And it will, again, involve a lot of individual uh, uh, choices, but certainly nobody's bring, you know, saving up their best works for uh, uh, Paris right now because they assume uh, Basel is still going to be the main show. A, a lot more New York highlights in the auctions, though. I think capitalizing on the idea that people would be coming in from both all, all parts of the planet for this week in Paris, um, you know, Sotheby's had Solinger on view, which was 
impressive and strong to see in that space. And they've taken a second space now, a temporary space, just down from their main space in Paris for their private sailing. So, you know, they're clearly expanding and trying to capture this momentum towards people looking at Paris. And, you know, the sales on the ground, save the Italian stuff, which we talked about last time, do still feel pretty regional, I'd say in the sort of traditional French market. Um, the Waller collection with the Warhol is kind of the outlier, but the majority of that collection is very French and is very Franco market. So it kind of just makes sense in that in that position. It definitely didn't turn into an auction event. And for where it, where it did, uh, uh, Christie's made out very well by moving the Italian stuff to Paris. They opened more capacity in London and the combined sales were larger. Now that may just be the market moment, but they, they certainly were able to work that out to their benefit, not to their detriment. It looked great. And for anyone who understands logistics, just keeping it in the EU makes a lot more sense for that massive Fontana and the Poeti. So. so while you were there, uh, so many people, uh, judging from Instagram, went to the Monet-Joan Mitchell show. And uh, I, one, I wanted to get your impressions and two, I also wanted to get Sophie's impressions uh, from Instagram because it's a, it's an interesting, you know, how it sort of gelled in this moment. I The show was incredible. And thanks to a friend who missed his flight, I was actually able to see it because getting a ticket to that show was near impossible. I had dinner with a gallerist on Monday who was lamenting the fact that he wasn't going to be able to see the show. Um, so I felt very fortunate um, to get to go. Um, the show is impressive. I mean, they've got the biggest grouping of the Grand Valet paintings since they were originally all shown together. I think they have 10 of them, including the triptych. It's amazing how deep the LVMH collection is on Mitchell. Um, and the other part, and this was echoed by a few people that I thought was super impressive, was how many loans came from national museums on the Monet side and on the Mitchell side um, for a private museum. So the breadth and the depth that a private museum was willing to go out and get these public museum pieces and put them in this private space was a real testament to the power that the museum curators hold and in putting the show together and you know i thought the show itself aesthetically was incredible you know it's just kind of knockout picture after knockout picture and it crossed mediums but the other thing that was amazing is that you've got this Monet Mitchell show upstairs and then downstairs, there's a whole Mitchell retrospective. That's that's how deep they went. And obviously, Mitchell spent the majority of her life in, in France. And there's a lot of Mitchell that comes out of France. But just to have both those shows running concurrently, I thought was amazing. Well, that that retrospective, I'm assuming it's the one that was in San Francisco and Baltimore be, beforehand, is very impressive. And it, the one place it's light is on the Grand Valet uh, pictures. There's in, in the American uh, uh, version of the show. I think there's a, there's a one small room with like one or two pictures. Uh, no, ten. And they and they yeah. were very. They definitely crowed about it. They definitely on the wall text were said this is the first time that we've had this many of these pictures in one room. So just the length that they were able to go to to get. And I was looking at some of the, you know, the cart the the. Wall, wall labels and you know some of them said you know courtesy of Hauser and Worth like collection services and you know the the sort of different places that these things came out of very very impressive so they definitely did their homework so but what does that tell you both about her current market and the sort of future potential for her market i mean the the retrospective itself is uh enough to get people to reassess certainly different periods i know that there was a I guess they're like 80s pictures. There was a room in the retrospective of those later pictures that was, you know, 
very impressive, both in the collectors who own them and just the works being, you know, seen together. Yeah, sort of like two thoughts on that. I wonder, there's a moment, if we look to another abstract artist who had a big museum moment, we look at like Christopher Wool, right? And when Davos came out and said that they've been this huge Christopher Wool supporter at the top end of the market, that kind of was like the end of the Christopher Wool market in one sense, because it was kind of one one main body buying up all the trophy pieces. I, I don't think that's totally the case with Mitchell. And I think that Mitchell, obviously, her career already spanned a number of decades um, with certain parts of it being more desirable historically than others. I think, to your point, the 80s pictures came out looking really fresh and bold. Um, and this, you know, the, the 50s and 60s work still have their charm to them, obviously. But the the later stuff, not so much the 90s works, but the 80s really, I feel like, came into its own. You know, the colors were vibrant and fresh. The brush strokes were really engaging and intriguing. So, you know, the, those pictures had a different kind of vibrancy in that setting than I think a lot of people give them credit for historically. So that feels like there's a chance, you know, it depends on the works and the reasons for being so... Them, the reasons that they get sold, but there's a chance for, I mean, her uh, auction record is somewhere in the high teens, I believe right now, uh, you know, potentially her moving up to, you know, sort of uh, a, another level in, in the eight figure range and, you know, sort of taking over as the kind of recognizable global artist that everyone, you know, feels good about owning, but is also, you know, a status symbol and a universal language. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that's right. Well, you know, the top two records are for a 69 picture followed very quickly by a diptych Grand Ballet painting. So just kind of the breadth of which these, where these things can go. And they're not separated by that. I mean, quantum, let's think about what we're talking about here, but like in terms of valuation, they're a couple million apart from each other, but that's not too far when you're in the team. So uh, to, to switch gears slightly uh, and, and to bring Sophie in, uh, one, Sophie, I wanted to just get your take on the, the Mitchell market, but I also, you've been following um, interest in other women, especially American women, abstract painters. And you mentioned a couple of weeks ago on this podcast that there was a very strong sale for uh, an Alice Baber painting. And I know there's another one coming up uh, this week. So you're sort of a dealer's choice. You you can answer either question, but I'm uh, uh, curious to know your sort of take on sort of women abstract uh, painters. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I, I'm going to have to see if I can find my way to Paris at some point, if I can get myself a ticket. But um, I, you know, as you guys were discussing, I think it's really nice that the retrospective is, you know, directly coinciding with this kind of comparison of Mitchell to Monet, just because I think it gives people who might not have that strong of a context with Mitchell where they might have it with Monet to kind of get that alongside of the comparison um, to, you know, what the New York Times is saying that Monet was Mitchell's nemesis. She always likes to tell people, you know, don't talk to me about Monet, um, which is, you know, very in line with her personality. Uh, but yeah, I mean, Barring the fact that I haven't seen the show, I think it's incredible to be able to see the work side by side, especially as the two artists worked so close together in terms of their location of where they were working and to be able to see the hues that they chose for their particular works. And while their style is quite different, I think you can see the effect of obviously the landscape um, on their choice of paint colors and just the way it affected them personally. So um, I think it's a, a brilliant matchup. Um, and 
again, bringing that retrospective in is is crucial to just the education of the public on Mitchell um, more broadly. But well, let me hold on, hold, hold on before you jump to uh, uh, Baber. We're we're just we're living through this moment of reevaluation and of of uh, equity and a, a strong interest in women painters and to have a show that takes you know one of the biggest names in global art certainly in terms of you know museums and reputation but also in terms of the market and pair him with one of the longest standing name uh, women abstract painters you know before all of this she was a very valuable painter and a you know first tier recognized painter maybe not given her full due and we're seeing some of that um you know uh, happening now but it, it the, the just existence of the pairing these two names seems to do a lot to, to a movement that's already in full swing. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I also think, you know, I think you can never like overestimate the amount that, you know, just the general public might know about somebody's life like Mitchell that, I mean, I bet a lot of people don't even know that she permanently moved to France. You know, she is seen as an American painter. So being able to put her in the context of French painting um, alongside the fact that she is an American painter and very much aligned and, you know, kind of, as you said, this one of the central figures to American abstract female artists um, is also crucial, just being able to give her that rounded out context that is so, you know, crucial to understanding who she is and why she painted what she did and what, you know, she was influenced by, even if she liked to stand up and say that she wasn't influenced by Monet, but, um, you know, she was strong-willed and she had the right to say so, but I think it, it, it is, it's great to see these two together and, and give her kind of another place to outside of the U S for people to kind of know the name and expand her even further internationally. Now, let me make um, a segue here because when she, uh, uh, Joe Mitchell first moved to Paris, one of the people she hung around with was a painter named Paul Jenkins. And Paul Jenkins was married for six or seven years to Alice Baber. So there we have our, our six degrees of separation between the uh, two. So tell us a little bit about what's going on with uh, Alice Baber. Yeah, I mean, her works um, are, you know, as we talked about a few podcasts ago, she had a kind of a grand sale at John Moran, um, a large painting way above estimate. But, you know, she has another painting coming up actually tomorrow, um, which will already be sold by the time this airs. But the work is, I mean, ginormous. It's 103 uh, inches high by 72 inches wide. So, I mean, this piece needs a wall, but, um, you know, the estimate is conservative at 30 to 50 for a painting of that size, but Faber's a name that's kind of starting to swirl around with, um, as Lynn Drexler, you know, is moving farther and farther away from some people's budgets, um, and just, you know, gaining popularity and being brought back in the way that she is, uh, you know, rising tides. Do you, do you think that's, do you think, do you think that's uh, part of it, you know, as this sort of market structuring as, uh, you know, uh, uh, Lynn Drexler's become 600, 900,000, a million and a half dollar paintings uh, that people are searching for other 
um, similar, uh, you know, abstract painters that can be bought in the 150, 200,000 uh, range, though there's only been one price anywhere near 150 for uh, Baber. Yeah, I mean, I would I would say yes, because I mean, that's just the way that my own mind works. You know, if I were thinking if I had a budget of $150,000 and I that no longer is feasible really for um, a Drexler, you know, you start to look elsewhere. I think that's how the market works in general. And Baber's a great example. She has, um, you know, she was widely traveled. She was in Japan. Um, she was in France. Obviously, she was in the United States. But you see a lot of influence of American artists in her work. But also, you do see that influence of, um, you know, Japanese ink work in her paintings. And there are paintings on grand scales, as we can see by the one that's being sold tomorrow. And, it, you know, it's from 1975. So the 70s were an incredible year for a lot of the female painters. So I think she fits well within the context of the moment um, and certainly has a biography to back it up. So yeah, I think there's a lot to come for her. It's just to see if if more of these paintings, you know, make their way to auction. And so, so tell me, yeah. So Tell me a bit how that works for you guys. You know, you, you, you're involved in these sales uh, and the work is either sort of structured in that there's an estate or there's a dealer who represents the estate. Does that make it easier for you to work within that market or is it require still sort of visible public prices so that people understand what, you know, uh, collectors are willing to pay for these work. I mean, I can let um, George jump in here, but I, I mean, I think it's heavily dependent on the person you're working with, um, just in terms of their understanding of the market, the depth of their collecting, and, you know, also just like the particular artists that you're working with. But I think it's really dependent. It's case by case, at least in my case, but um, I love George's opinion as well. Yeah, I think it also de depends on sort of how much risk one's willing to take on new new discoveries and new names you know that i think is always part of it as well so and obviously there's lots of programs that have built themselves around rediscovery so um how how much i think it i think like you said it's a case-by-case -case basis but the reason i ask that is there are a couple of other painters who you know are similar uh, vivian springford uh had a, a private selling show at uh, Christie's and has had a couple of sales, including one at um, Phillips uh, a few weeks ago. Uh, there's uh, uh, Sheila Ishan, who's, you know, the, all three, not not to reduce their work to being there, but all three at one time did this kind of stained uh, work. And it's just interesting to see, you know, there's different galleries trying to work within those uh, markets. And, and I presume some of this is, you know, collectors have to do their homework, but also a, a little bit who can gain the momentum and get, uh, you know, enough people on side to, to keep it going. Who can tell the best story, right? Like who can, who can illustrate the reason why this is being put back into the canon? You know, I think that's, that's really part of it. You know, what the brand of that dealer looks like overall, sort of, and what gravitas they have to coming to that opinion and putting it out there. And then also too, you know, how much material is there in in an estate and how good of condition it is. We were learning with the Lynn Drexler estate that there's lots of material. It's in varying degrees of quality because of, you know, she wasn't super wealthy during her lifetime. So it wasn't stored very well. 
Um, and that's been the case in other rediscoveries. Sam Gilliam was very much the same. You know, I think it's, you know, if we look even further back, it's kind of like Stephen Perino, right? That was, that's a market that keeps getting, one, one, a gallery with a different brand kind of keeps reinventing the estate and pushing it up. And we saw it first with Gagosian after his untimely passing, and then with Scarsdale a few years ago. And then, you know, I think it'll all die down again and someone will go, hey, I think Stephen Perino feels like it needs retelling. The interesting thing is that because there weren't a lot of sales during Prino's life, there's not a ton of material out there. And so, you know, we with ever sort of shrinking amounts of it too. So those are those are kind of all the questions that make up the matrix of like, is this sustainable or not? You know, Noah Davis but, is another one, like not enough material. Well, uh, but is there with like Perino, is there enough material within the estate? I mean, you end up with the kind of Clifford Still situation where, you know, uh, he, he kept it all and then it all ends up in a museum. And so there are a few stills that sell for a lot of money and then there's basically nothing else. Right. And that and I think that's that's the doing your homework part when going into these rediscoveries is just knowing how much is truly out there. And that's part of what the galleries have to 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 do, but you guys working in the spaces in between need to be able to, you know, know what's going on with uh, how much is out there and where where it might come up and how much well, cuz you uh, ideally you want to tell the same story, right? Is that hey, this great gallery is behind the this get in now. There's going to be a lot of demand for for Baber, Springford, whomever uh, uh, going along. Sophie, are you hearing it on the other side, the people who are sort of looking for this stuff? What kind of questions do they have when kind of making these decisions about, you know, if if they get priced out of uh, uh, Drexler, which, which other artists they might gravitate toward? Yeah, I think... You know, I think people are are cautious. They want to know, you know, am I the only one asking this question? Um, you do you basically kind of the same question George was talking about. Like, is there a lot of this? Like, is it going to flood the market? Um, you know, or is this kind of like a little blimp and she has two or three great sales and we don't see any more of it and no gallery really picks her up? I think the thing with Baber right now is that she doesn't really have a strong home at a gallery. Um you know, Barry Campbell has some of her works and um, I think they're going to have a show for her at least in the upcoming year, but it's still very, you'd have to be very, very interested in her work, I think, to be kind of on, on the, on the buying side of this, but there's people out there that definitely want to be that early. So I think it's just asking the right questions, thinking about, and also if it fits into their collecting style. Um, a lot of people that are this early on somebody like Baber is probably pretty deep into that female abstract um, market or just abstract expressionists in general. So yeah, the, the questions vary, but the people I've talked to are, are pretty well educated in the market, but I still think people are moving slow on her, even though that one auction sale looks looks pretty hot. We'll see what tomorrow brings. Um, can't say I have a wall big enough for that, but I hope someone does. Well, it sounds like you're also saying it, the combination of a gallery like Barry Campbell doing something, you know, in terms of a big show that uh, plants a flag and maybe getting some of these works into, um, you know, one of the big three auction houses to really be able to uh, gain momentum are the ingredients that might be necessary. Yeah, definitely. Seeing it kind of spread outside of just like one house or like the core galleries that it's been sitting in for a while, you know, that spread just provides a level of security that you're not the only one looking at something. So definitely. Um, 
and you know Barry Campbell was instrumental in bringing Drexler uh, to the forefront so you know I think they definitely have the might to bring Baber up so we'll see what happens in the coming months that's great all right thank you uh, George and Sophie I really appreciate it thanks Marion Thank you for joining us for Live Arts Market Pulse. The Artelligence podcast is edited by Colin Ketchum, who also composed the original music. Come back next week, and don't forget to download the Live Art app or visit us at liveart.io.